and welcome to another episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I'm your host, Zach Wright, an online editor for Volume 105. On this episode, I am joined by Professor Jay Wexler, a professor of law at Boston University School of Law. Professor Wexler's scholarship focuses on church state law, constitutional law, environmental law, and marijuana law. In his free time, Professor Wexler tracks bracket laughter bracket at the Supreme Court. We discuss his forthcoming article, Reverse a Eustem Generis, which is focused on a canon of statutory interpretation largely unrecognized in the law. The article will be published in the Minnesota Law Review this fall. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Professor Wexler, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Um, so before we dive into your article, um, I thought we could kind of talk a little bit about uh, where you got the idea for it and the origin and the writing process of it. Um, I know as a student reading articles in law reviews and other journals, uh, I find it's easy to slip into the headspace that these pieces sort of exist in a vacuum, but I know that that's not true. So I was wondering if you could you know, talk a little bit about how you got the idea for your article and sort of the writing process itself. Yeah, sure, happy to. Um, yeah, articles come from all different places, and you know, uh, all kinds of scholarly workbooks and and stuff come from all different places. Um, this this article, though, uh, definitely had its origins in my teaching, uh, and I, I'd sort of been, um, in a way, you can say I've been kind of working on it for like a decade, um, in a sense, because. <laughs> Uh, I used to, I don't teach these things anymore, but I used to teach administrative law and environmental law. And then some years I taught legislation also. So I used to teach the case of Massachusetts versus EPA sometimes three times a year in three different classes. <laughs> uh, and I did that for you know many years. So like I taught the case so many times and it's such a puzzle and uh, it's so bizarre um, uh, and for a variety of reasons, but, but particularly this, uh, the, the statutory question. And I, I always puzzled over that whenever I taught it. And every year I would think about it slightly differently. And then I realized that actually the same question that arises in, in Massachusetts versus EPA when it comes to interpreting the key statute also was had come up in other cases in other classes that I had taught. So I would teach, uh, I would always mention this uh, great case about solid waste uh, in my environmental, in my environmental law case, which, has a, a same, basically turns out to be the same exact problem as the, as the one in Mass versus EPA. And then in my legislation class, I used to teach this pirate case and the students loved the pirate case. And then I realized that that was posing the same exact question. So at some point, like it all came together that there was this recurring issue uh, in all these cases, and but nobody had identified that they were the same. And, um, and so that's what, at some point I got the idea, ah, I could write an article about this particular uh, construct canon of construction that was at issue in all these cases, but nobody really ever noticed. So, so it was kind of cooking for 10 years, but then you had this aha moment. Right. And when was that aha moment? Do you think? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a couple, it, it, I certainly was, did not just get the aha moment and then write the piece. I got the aha moment and uh, started writing something and then asked my research assistant to do some research on uh, something uh, something related to it. And then that sat there for a while. And then 
I don't know, at some point I decided, well, now I have some free time and I'll write, I'll write it up. And uh, so maybe a couple of years after the aha moment, I actually wrote the piece. Was was that writing process pretty smooth or were there some challenges along the way? It was pretty smooth. Although um, the, the, the problem with this article for me is that it's kind of core analysis is is sort of a logic puzzle um you know i'm sure we'll get into the to the substance um about, but uh soon but but basically for the listeners it's it's kind of a, a a recurring puzzle that that pops up in various statutes and then courts have to figure out how to deal with the puzzle and um although i'm pretty good at legal analysis i'm really really bad at those kinds of puzzles um, so like when I took the LSAT, I took, I got like 17 out of the 19 logic puzzles wrong questions wrong or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and I can always tell when I'm teaching something or, or studying something that, that poses those kinds of, uh, legal logic puzzle problems. Cause I, it, they're just very hard for me to process. So, uh, and that, so this article was about, you know, basically was not quite, was sort of the opposite of my wheelhouse. Um, it wasn't really something that I was used to writing, the kind of thing I'm used to writing. So um, it was weird to write it uh, a little bit because it was out of my uh, comfort zone, but I, but I think it came out all right. I mean, I, it was, it's funny. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you come up with a, there's a question, the question's really interesting, but then working through it is not to your strengths. And so you don't, uh, you're sort of questioning whether you should have done it, but this, this, I think came out. Okay. So I'm happy with it, but it was, <laughs> I, I would say, uh, saying that it came out. Okay. Might be putting it lightly. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this piece. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate it. And, yeah, you're welcome. And, and I'm a big one fan of, the... of Minnesota. I want to university of Minnesota school of law. Did I get that right? Exactly. I think so. Yes. Um, and here's a, a small aside. Uh, uh-huh. Last f- last fall, yeah, Justice Kagan came and spoke here at the University of Minnesota Law School and mentioned um, your your SCOTUS humor study um, and spoke spoke highly of you there. So that was actually the first tidbit of your. your oh, that was great! Like uh, so, so she used to she she likes to talk about the Sc- the Supreme Court humor study, but she didn't used to know my name. Uh, and then once she referred to me as like Professor Alexander or something like that. And so like I tweeted about it and, and then she her, one of her clerks must have seen the tweet or something. And then so she emailed me apologizing. Um, and so and we had this little back and forth where I or where I told her I hope that she beat out the chief for, for second place this year and stuff like that. And uh, and now she remembers and she, now she's very kind to me when she uh, mentions uh, the study. And so that was really very nice of her. And I, I'm glad I got a nice little introduction uh, <laughs> at the law school. From her. Yeah, it was it was a good speech and it's fun to hear she followed up on it. Yeah, I should, um, I should really do that more often. I should get, you know, if I could just get justices to go to the law schools, you know, where I was hoping to publish, just <laughs> me, you know, I think that'd be a good strategy for me. I think it would work too. Yeah, um, yeah. That's actually a decent segue into one other question I had for you about the writing process. So yes. um, in, in reading your piece, and I've, I've actually read it a couple of times now, one of the first things that stuck out to me was the style isn't maybe a typical law review piece. <laughs> and I like it a lot. And I think it's a good thing. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the style itself and then also, you know, how you arrived at that style. And real quick, before you do that, I'll just read your opening line um, so that our listeners can hear it. Um, so the opening line is in the canon of statutory construction canons, perhaps no canon is more canonical 
than the canon known as Ajustum Generis. Yeah, well, I'm glad you like that. Um, uh, yeah, the style. So I, I write a lot of stuff that's not law review articles, and um, and much of it, it has humor in it and has kind of goofy style. Uh, books and and little articles and even just plain humor pieces, um, you know, places like McSweeney's and stuff. So so that's just natural for me. So the unnatural thing would be to write a, uh, a straightforward uh, law review like most people write uh, that's very boring. And I did that for plenty of years to get tenure. But the great thing about being, you know, 50 and having tenure is that I don't have to worry about that anymore <laughs> at all. Um, not that I worried about it that much ever, but I did, you know, I did used to play the game a little more. But now, um, you know, I can do what I can write what I want and and how I want. And this is just so much more fun. And I don't think <laughs> like like I, you know, it, it doesn't it, like if the goofiness like affected the analysis, um, you know, and um, and it. Uh, then that would be one thing, but I think that I was a, uh, at least what I tried to do is keep, you know, the 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 this sort of funny tone while still making all of the arguments that I would make if I used the boring tone. So it, to me, it's like uh, you know that, that why why wouldn't you do that? Now, of course, sometimes you get a a faculty member who is very serious and staid, and uh, you know they have their pipe and they're like, I don't think this is appropriate. Uh, but the, that again, you know, I don't care. <laughs> so <laughs> like in my, when I presented this at a workshop, somebody said that they thought it was a spoof article. Um, and which is not, you know, out of the question because I have done things a little bit like that, but, um, but uh, you know, I think they wanted me to change the tone or something, but there was no way I was going to do that. And, and actually most people on the faculty, they know what they're getting into when they go to one of my workshops and they were very <laughs> supportive uh, of the tone. Um, and then when they found out that it was, you know, coming out of the Minnesota Law Review, then they were like uh, even, you know, more in favor of everything that I did. <laughs> so <that's good. laughs> well, well, with that scene set, let's turn to the analysis then. So sure. Before we really dive into it, um, you know, I, I have taken a lot of the classes that you you teach and the uh, interpretive ones especially, but I thought for people who hadn't, it might be useful to just briefly run through some terms. Um, sure. So uh, what what is a canon of construction? Sure, a canon of construction is kind of a, 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 a rule or a guideline uh, about how to read ambiguous language, how to interpret ambiguous language. Um, some of them are some of the canons of construction are textual canons of construction, like the one uh, that it's at issue in this uh, article that says, you know, if there are certain words appearing in a certain order or something like that, then it makes sense to read it one way uh, as opposed to another way. Um, and uh, then there are also what they call substantive canons of construction, which are kind of guidelines or rules about or not not rules guidelines about how to read statutes. Um, in order to kind of effectuate certain uh, good results. Um, like for example, there's a canon of construction that says, uh, if there's a treaty between, uh, if there's a treaty that's been entered into by Native American tribe uh, with the US government and it's ambiguous, you should read it um, in, in the way that best favors the tribe. Um, and so that's a substantive canon of construction. So these are, um, they're, they're, they're guidelines, uh, ways of uh, approaching ambiguous language to try to figure out what, the, what, the, what Congress intended by the language when they wrote it. Gotcha. And so would you say they're important because they, they kind of help determine what the law is? 
Um, they're they're important because they they help judges uh, figure out what yeah what the law what the statutes mean. I mean specifically the statutes. Um, you know, and so and the other thing is um, they are they're maligned in some uh, the, the canons of construction are kind of made fun of in some circles because it's true that sometimes courts follow the canons of construction and other times they say, well, nah, not this time. Uh, and, it, and it's hard to figure out when they're using it and when they're not using it other than maybe, uh, you know, when it help, when it serves their purposes, they use it and when it doesn't, they don't. Um, they're, they're certainly manipulable um, and, uh, and, and can be used either for good or evil, I guess. But, um, but in the hands of a, of a conscientious judge who's really trying to figure out the best way to read a statute, I think they, they do help and they are important for that reason. And your article kind of revolves around, I guess what I would characterize as two flavors of um, the canon that we, we mentioned and you, you mentioned in your opening line. Um, and I, I pronounce it adjustum generis. Uh, that might be wrong. And I realize I'm hosting a podcast called Experto Crede, so my Latin should probably be a little bit better. <laughs> Uh, but is is that the correct pronunciation? You know, I don't know what the pr- correct pronunciation is, and moreover, I don't want to know. Uh, so, <laughs> right. like, like I think I think that I've heard that all in Latin, all G's are are hard, okay. which would make it generous, I guess. But I don't like how that sounds, so I always just call it a eustem generis. Um, okay. uh, but uh, you know, we can call it anything you want when we can call it we can pronounce it different ways different times like that's all fine because we know what we're, what we're talking about <laughs> perfect well I'll, I'll try to stay consistent but we'll see if that happens so right. so first one more term for you so regular eustem generis what what is that right so that's a rule uh, a canon of construction rather that says basically if you have a construction that looks like this a a, a list of terms a b and c uh, and then there's a catch all after that and any other Z, right? So, and statutes look like that all the time, A, B, and C, A, B, C, and any other Z. Um, the a use of generous says that the set of things covered by Z is limited uh, to the type of things that A, B, and C represent. So, um, so an example would be, um, let's see, uh, running, swimming, hiking, and other, sports, let's say. Uh, and then the question might be, is the other sport, do, does car racing uh, fall into the any other sport clause or whatever? Mm-hmm. And then you, in order to figure that out, you might look at what, what, what A, B, and C are like, like what the shared characteristic of A, B, and C are, running, hiking, walking, whatever I said. And they're all, you know, uh, arguably just... Uh, uh, people using on their own power without using any, uh, you know, um, machines or anything. So you might conclude that Z, any other sports does not include car racing uh, in that example. So that's, that's your typical Houston generous uh, guideline. And it's, it's maybe the most, it's certainly one of the most common canons of construction. You see it used all the time and courts are always talking about it. And now how about the atypical or the the reverse, which is, you know, kind of at the heart of your, your piece here? Yeah, right. So this so the article is is about how there's this other kind of a Houston generous called reverse the Houston generous, or at least it was termed that by one judge. Um, and that that is a variation kind of on the regular Houston generous. And it basically imagine the same 
formulations, the same, uh, the same structure of a statute, A, B, C, and any other Z. Um, this construction says that whatever, uh, that, that this construction says that A, B, and C, uh, to the extent that it's ambiguous what they are, they must also be Z. So that's confusing when you're just talking about letters. Uh, but uh, but an example is, you know how Kansas City, there, there's a Kansas City, Kansas, and a Kansas City, Missouri, right? Which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite mm-hmm. things about American <laughs> geography. Um, and so if you had a list that said um, Kansas City, uh, Topeka, Lawrence, Ta- uh, what else is a Kansas City? Uh, as a as a city in Kansas. Uh, oh man, uh, yeah, no, I don't know. Uh, Overland Park. It doesn't matter. All right, let's go back. Kansas City, uh, um, uh, <laughs> Kansas City. What were the ones that hit? Lawrence, Topeka, and Lawrence. Yeah, yeah, right. Topeka, Lawrence, Kansas City, and uh, and any other city in Kansas. Um, and then you and the question is: Is Kansas City, Missouri, covered mm-hmm. uh, by by the the term Kansas City? Um, you would look at the any other Z, any other city in Kansas, and use that to refer back to and modify Kansas City. Uh, and so you would say under reverse of Houston Generous that Kansas City, Missouri is not included because the any other any other city in Kansas limits the terms in the list, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so you mentioned a judge called it this first, but also it it doesn't seem like it's particularly a a new idea is is it a new idea? No, no, it's not definitely not a new idea. Um, you get statutes that look like this that going way, way back to the early, well, I don't know how far back, but pretty far. And certainly, we got a case as a case in the in the article that I discussed from early eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. So it's um, statutes have always looked like this, um, and courts have uh, sometimes been called on to figure out whether to read a statute in the reverse of use of generous way or not. And that goes back uh, at least to 18, I, I can't remember when this pirate case was, 1808, I sort of think, but um, mm-hmm. something like that. So it's not a new problem. It's just that nobody had, um, well, nobody had given it a name until Judge Williams from the DC circuit um, gave it a name in in the late nineties in a case. And he noticed that it's like, well, this is like a Houston generous, but kind of in reverse. And so he called it reverse of Houston generous. Uh, But he he basically discovered it and gave it a name. It had existed for a very long time. And you've mentioned this pirate case twice now. Do you happen to remember the, the statutory language that was at hand in that case? Um, I, I can give you the, the sort of shorthanded version. Yeah. The, the, um, it's basically, um, it says that uh, there was a statute that said uh, that, that you get put to death for committing any murder or, <clears throat> let's go back. You, you, get, uh, uh, you get the death penalty if while on the high seas, you commit any murder or robbery or any other offense punishable by death if committed on land. Mm-hmm. That's uh, um, that's what the that's what the the the, the statute says. Mm-hmm. And then, so somebody uh, committed robbery on the boat, uh, but the relevant law on the land that would have applied would not have resulted in the death penalty had the robbery happened on land. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the question was, uh, does, do you get put to death for robbery on the boat? I mean, it does say if you get, you know, you get put to death for committing any murder or robbery, 
So maybe that, maybe you do. But on the other hand, if you read the whole thing, it says any murder or robbery or other offense punishable by death if committed on land. And robbery was not punishable by death if committed on land. So therefore, the argument that the defendant made was that the robbery committed on the seas should not be punished by death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it to me, in reading your piece, I think you identified as well that the use of the word other in a lot of these statutes and in these statutory phrases is pretty important when trying to limit uh the, the breadth of a statute in this way. Um, is right. it, Could you talk a little bit more about kind of the use of other specifically in some of these statutes? Yeah, so um, uh, the, um, well, maybe can I, can I give the sludge case? Cause that's so, yeah. uh, that's, yeah. uh, that, that's easier for me to remember and, and work with. Like, Absolutely. So, so there's this case with the DC circuit from not too long ago, which is falls under this statute called RICRA, the, Re, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. I think it's called something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and it, it regulates solid waste. So if you're solid waste, then you're regulated. If you make solid waste, you're regulated under the act. And solid waste is defined basically as any garbage, refuse, sludge, and any other discarded material. And the question is, is non-discarded sludge uh, count as solid waste? Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And so the question is, does other discarded material go back and modify the words garbage refuse and sludge Mm -hmm. or not? Um, So, so the word, the use of the word other there um, suggests that, right. Garbage refuse sludge and other discarded material. The other suggests that the garbage refuse and sludge has to have been discarded to be fall under the statute, because otherwise, why would you have the word other there? Mm-hmm. Uh, other seems to do the work of refer e, e, taking the definition, taking the the phrase discarded material and relating it back to garbage, refuse, and sludge. So how else would you know? Why else would other be there? So other is always a good argument for using the reverse of used generous uh, canon in any particular case. But the problem is that there's um, on the other side there's always uh, a parallel argument, which is. Why then did this did Congress or the legislature actually list all the words like list garbage, refuse, and sludge? Why did it just say solid waste is other discarded material? Is I'm mm-hmm. sorry, solid waste is discarded material. Um, and you can oh, that happens in every single use of generous case. Um, and so so the other, you know, does is a good argument, but there's always a counter argument on the other side. And so um, it ends up not, I think, being determinative usually. And you, you kind of touch on five different factors that are important in analyzing this sort of, you know, argue this way, but then there's always a counter argument as well. Um, so other is sort of that explicit catch-all word or phrase. Um, you talk about the possibility of the specific fitting within the general. You talk about the length of the specific list that comes before maybe that, uh, that quote unquote other phrase um, mm-hmm. or the general. Um could if this might be putting you on the spot, but if you could construct maybe the perfect reverse Eustem generis statute, what what would you think it would say? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's that is putting me on the spot. I mean, so so one thing is you'd have a really long list, um, mm-hmm. right? The the longer the list, the A, B, and C is uh, where they all seem to uh, you know pop, be potentially limited by the by the catch all. The longer that list is, the more likely it is, I think, that the reverse use of generous should be used. So, 
like if you if you had um, just Kansas City, Topeka, and any other city in Kansas compared to Kansas City, Topeka, and then you listed eight other Kansas cities in Kansas and said mm-hmm. any other Kansas, any other city in Kansas, the, the argument for uh, reversing Houston generous would be stronger uh, when the list is longer. Um, uh, and the more precise, I think the the catch-all is, uh, the more likely it is that. It, may, it would make sense to read the catch-all to refer to to to, to modify the, the terms in the list. Um, so I'm not going to be able to come up with this perfect uh, the perfect uh, statute, unfortunately. Um, but there are you know um, there are different kind of factors that I try to identify that that make it more or less likely that a reverse of Houston generous reading would make sense. Like so, for example, if one of the things in the list. Um, you know, say B in the list of A, B, and C could mm-hmm. not possibly be a Z, then then the argument for using reverse of Houston generous doesn't uh, make any sense, um, mm-hmm. right? So um, so I, and we I tried to use uh, use a fruit example in the paper, um, uh, but I kept running into problems um, because there are many fruits you think are only one color, but they're actually lots of different colors. <laughs> so this, um, anyway, so um, I think the thing we settled on was something like um, uh, if you had a list that said um, apples, blueberries, uh, cherries, and any other yellow fruit. Mm. Uh, and the question was, are, is this limited to only yellow apples or yellow cherries as opposed to red apples and red cherries? Mm-hmm. The argument would uh, would would be pretty weak in that situation because blueberries, as far as I know, are not ever yellow. <laughs> uh, right. And so so you can't like logically read other yellow fruits to refer back to that list because blueberry is not an, a yellow fruit. So, so, uh, but of course, somebody's going to, you know, point out that that blueberry there are yellow blueberries or something. That, <laughs> like at, at the end of my, like I, I can't remember the specifics, but it, uh, in my in the original paper that I presented at the workshop, I I used uh, peppers as an example of a vegetable, and then somebody came up to me to explain to me that peppers are actually fruits. <laughs> is what she said and uh, whatever it was ruined the whole a, a uh, successful I, workshop is what i'm hearing there yeah but no it really was i think uh, people were very excited to just point out my logical flaws <laughs> and uh and explain to me what the definition of a fruit is but anyways um you know workshops are can, can be helpful um mm-hmm. <laughs> so so to to move away from kind of the fruit and maybe the the very logic game kind of nature of this uh-huh. Um, we get to Massachusetts v. EPA, um, mm. a very important case and a case that involves this interpretive technique that your piece is about. So I was wondering, um, this is this is the opportunity for me, for me as a law student to reverse roles here and cold call you as oh, a law no. professor. Uh, can you repeat the question? <laughs> yes, I was just going to ask if you remember the, the legal issue in that case. Um, can you repeat that? I'm not, what? Uh, oh, sorry. No, of, uh, of course. Um, yeah. I knew I was on panel today, so I'm, mm-hmm. I think I'm kind of ready. Um, okay, wait, so what's the question? What's the legal issue in the case? Yes. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, so so the, the issue is whether EPA um, has jurisdiction to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. And the Clean Air Act says that uh, a, green air ha- uh, a greenhouse gases are air pollutants. Basically, and mm-hmm. but then the statute defines air pollutants as the following: any air pollution agent, 
including any physical, chemical, biological substance emitted into the ambient air. Um, so that, and, and the EPA read that to preclude it from being able to regulate greenhouse gases. And the challenge was that no, the statute clearly gives the EPA the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. So um, th this is a somewhat different form of the reverse of use generous, but to put it back into the form we've been talking about, it, it, you, you could view the statute as saying basically um, greenhouse gases are air pollutants. And an air pollutant is defined as uh, any physical, chemical, biological substance in, uh, or other air pollution agent, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, so the question is, uh, we know that greenhouse gases are a chemical uh, agent, but uh, is, are a chemical substance rather, but the question is, do they also have to be air pollution agents? Uh, and if so, what might that mean? And, uh, and can the EPA sort of define um, greenhouse gases as something other than an air pollution agent, such that even though it's a chemical substance, it doesn't count as an air pollutant? Gotcha. And the EPA interpreted that to say that they did not have the jurisdiction at first, at least, to regulate. Right. right. Okay. And, and, and the reason they did that has to do with all sorts of things not having to do with the statute, uh, the <laughs> language of the statute. But so they basically made some policy decisions. I think it's, it's kind of fair to say that they didn't want to regulate greenhouse gases or, they, or that it doesn't make sense to regulate greenhouse gases. And then they sort of worked backwards to explain why the statute supported that uh, that view. And so the, the argument was basically that greenhouse gases are not air pollution agents because they don't uh, kind of, they don't sit around the lower part of the atmosphere where you breathe them in and get sick and cough kind of thing. Rather, they uh, air, uh, greenhouse gases go very far up into the atmosphere and then they um, spread out evenly. So they're not your typical uh, lead, uh, particulate matter, ozone, uh, nitrous di uh, dioxide, I guess, um, mm -hmm. and the other sort of air pollutant, the clear things that are clearly air pollutants under the Clean Air Act. Gotcha. And what, what did the courts think of that? Maybe even the lower courts first, if you can recall. Um, so the, the lower court, uh, um, so, so the D.C. Circuit heard the case and the D.C. Circuit uh, held for the government Mm -hmm. Two to one, but they the the two never got to this statutory interpretation question. The the only judge that got to the, the statutory interpretation question was the dissent by Judge Tatel, uh, who is my former boss, by the way, and uh, um, and so I think he got it right. Um, <laughs> although actually, he but I won't go into a recent case where I think he got it right. But anyways, mm -hmm. um, um, so he got to the statutory question and thought it was very clear that a greenhouse gas counts as any, chemi you know, is, is certainly any chemical substance. And that's basically what he, how he read it. And it, so it was kind of an easy question for him. Uh, and then the case went to the Supreme Court. And I, uh, should I talk about the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah by all means, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so the, so the, the, um, the, the Supreme Court held five to four in favor of uh, the challengers and against EPA, basically holding that EPA had the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. And, and also in the other part of the case, the reason we gave for not doing so was uh, arbitrary and capricious. So, but on our point, uh, basically five judges thought that the statutory interpretation question was straightforward. It was not a reverse of Houston generous issue. It was just basically uh, our greenhouse gases, uh, do they count as any chemical substance? And, you know, if you look at it that way, the answer is yes. Um, 
the word, the, it, you know, it helps uh, the argument on the side that the word any appears several times in the statute. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, and, and I, I read the majority basically as, as saying, look, you've got all these any's in there. It's basic, those are, should be read as basically indications by Congress of its intent to have a really, really, really broad definition. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Justice Scalia in dissent, uh, it take uh, said that there's a there that that's a plausible way of reading the statute, of course, but there's another way to read the statute, which is basically uh, he didn't use the term, but basically the reverse of used in generous fashion, in which a greenhouse gas is only an air pollutant if it is a chemical substance that is also an air pollution agent, mm-hmm. and EP that was EPA's position, and Justice Scalia thinks thought that was plausible also. Um, and since the, the the agency should receive deference under Chevron, is a whole separate issue. Mm-hmm. Um, um, then the basically what you have is the 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 agency making a reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous statute, and therefore the court should uphold the agency's decision that it does not have power to regulate greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. And in your piece, you argue that kind of the Supreme Court on the whole. And the discussion or the lack thereof of discussion um, on on that interpretive kind of turn was kind of incomplete for for a couple different ways. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, what was really interesting is you. Um, so Justice Scalia was relying on this argument, this reverse of Houston generous canon of construction, but he did not name it. Right. And the government in their brief who brought the court's attention to this whole issue also didn't name it. And so it looked like uh, so what I think it it, uh, it just sort of looked like the government and Justice Scalia were kind of making something up like they were they were they were coming up with this weird way of reading a statute that we had, you know, nobody ever, you know, saw before or talked about before. Uh, and so so it didn't it wasn't it didn't catch the attention of the majority or persuade the majority that it needed to even be addressed and my what my point of the article is with respect to this case is that if the government had recognized or if the Supreme, justice scalia had recognized that in fact the the mass versus epa statute posed this a very typical recurring statutory interpretation question that goes way back to the 1800s mm-hmm. uh, and can be described but with this you know kind of latin phrase then it would have it would have been um, the, the dissent would have been more persuasive. The majority would have realized that this was kind of a more substantive argument that it had to kind of address. And uh, and also the both both sides could have more clearly compared um, this the, this particular statute uh, in the, the Clean Air Act that is with other statutes that courts have either interpreted or not interpreted in a reverse of use of generous way to sort of gauge whether the reverse of use of generous uh, approach uh, was made sense in this particular case. So in other words, there were there are lots of precedents that the court could have uh, looked to to get guidance in how to apply the reverse of use of generous canon. So, so I think those are those ca- capture the three ways that uh, that that basically the the discussion of the statutory interpretation question was impoverished mm-hmm. uh, by not recognizing that it that it uh, posed this recurring question that had come up many 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 times in the courts before. Mm-hmm. And you also 
point out that you might tend to agree with the, the practical result of Massachusetts v. EPA. Um, so here's a bit of a, a left field question for you, uh-huh. I guess. So w- would you trade that practical result for a proper recognition of reverse Eustem generis? <laughs> uh, would I tra- <laughs> would I trade the EPA being able to regulate greenhouse gases for yes <laughs> for an appropriate uh, use of a Latin? Uh, no, I don't okay. think I would. You know, I, I'm a I am a hack, a liberal hack. You know? So um, actually, I you know I I could go into how I don't think I'm a liberal hack. There are occasionally you know cases. I always tell my students this. Uh, I love it when I teach a case in which uh, which the, the the liberals and the conservatives disagree, and I actually agree with the conservatives because it always it makes me feel like I'm not a total hack. Um, <laughs> and so I uh, there are cases like that, um, but this is not one of them. This is you know I mean this, uh, but I do think I do think that the argument on uh, that Scalia's argument is substantial, you know, um, and in a way that the majority act just did not recognize. I mean, Justice uh, you know Stevens. Um, uh, just um, kind of blows this off, uh, the argument off, and even blows Chevron off, which is mm-hmm. weird since he wrote Chevron. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, his relationship to Chevron is is very weird. Um, but um, so so so, where was I going with it? Oh yeah, so so uh, you know, I don't know if the if the case came down to just this particular issue, you know, what I think uh, the right answer would be, and I I, I purposefully actually uh, dodged that question in the mm-hmm. in the article just because it's not. A, important mm-hmm. um and you know so it would be a distraction um so 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 the the short answer is no i i'm glad the epa can <laughs> greenhouse gases uh but the argument on the other side was uh, was a stronger than the majority recognized it mm-hmm. and it I'll, you know one thing that i found really interesting in your piece and in this case is just how cloaked in kind of chevron and deference doctrine this decision seemed to be and so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think these sort of statutory canons fit into, um, you know, the, the Chevron doctrine. I know that's not quite on point to exactly what you're arguing in the piece, mm-hmm. but you're providing a really important, in my view, new sort of tool in that sort of toolbox. Yeah. So Chevron and the canons of construction, I mean, some people think that Chevron is a canon of construction, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think, but um, so, you know, Chevron, uh, uh, I mean, so Chevron says that that uh, courts have to defer to reasonable agency interpretations of ambiguous statutes. Canons of construction, almost by definition, you know, are only useful in cases where you have ambiguous statutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and so one might say, look, if a canon of construction applies, then um, the agency can interpret either either using it or not. And as long as it's giving a reasonable explanation, it should get deference under Chevron, assuming that, right, this could go on and on, right? Assuming that the the interpretation is Chevron worthy under the Mead case and and who else? Uh, You know, I stopped teaching administrative law a few years ago. Uh, In fact, a few years before the the administration, you know, raised like 40 new administrative law issues. <laughs> so I'm kind of, I think I'm probably uh, out of it on administrative law these days, but um, um, you know, sometimes people will look at the, at the canons of construction and, and think that they make the statute, you know, clear uh, in which case, I guess you would say that they could result in, in a decision on Chevron step one, either for the agency or for, or against the agency. Mm-hmm. So I don't, um, 
I, I, I don't know about that. Um, they, they do fit together, the Chevron, uh, Chevron and the cans of construction. But I, I tend to think that if you have a can of construction at play, it kind of means that the agency, if it's made an interpretation, is going to get deference because it's mm-hmm. sort of by nature ambiguous. Mm-hmm. But I haven't thought much about that, you know, uh, directly that question. So, so uh, I'm not going to go to the bank with that explanation. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, are there any current cases or statutory issues that you're aware of where reverse? Oh goodness, reverse. <laughs> you said generous. Is it play? Um, so, um, not really. You know, part of what I was kind of hoping with this article is that people would uh, from different areas of law might you know recognize reverse the use of generous and whatever statutes they are familiar with, and then uh, you know email me with them. And then I could write a second argument, a second article called more fun with reverse of Houston Jenner. Uh, so far that has not happened. There was a case in the Supreme court, um, a year or two ago, a patent case where it did play a role. It's, I put it in a footnote somewhere because the court did eventually did not. I, I don't even know if they actually addressed the particular question, but it did come up at a oral argument. Um, when I gave the when I gave this as a workshop, a criminal law professor um, said that there are that there are many statutes where this could be helpful. He's a defense lawyer, so uh, he wanted to cite the article because there are some criminal defense uh, criminal statutes where he thought he could you know use this reverse use some generous argument to 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 to, to argue that his client should not be covered by a particular statute. So mm-hmm. my my thought is that it does exist uh, a lot in these in statutes that are out there and uh, will will continue to result in cases as we go forward. And now, hopefully, uh, since everyone will have you know, read the piece and listen to the podcast, everyone will know that this is uh, a thing, a real thing. And uh, and we can start calling it by its name and identify, uh, you know, when it comes up uh, that that's it, that, that the candidate is in play. That's my hope, my dream. One of my many dreams. <laughs> it's one of my hopes as well. So hopefully we can get that second article and then have another conversation. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Oh, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you end your article by stating that reverse Eustim generis should be discussed in case books, treatises, law school courses, in briefs and in cases. Um, and I think, you know, you've kind of just spoken about how important it would be to actually recognize this so that, you know, students, learners of the law, attorneys practicing, and also the courts can understand and have this tool and this framework. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, would adding podcasts to that list pose any problematic interpretive questions? I don't, uh, no, I don't think so. And not only that, um, um, it sh- certainly should be added, right? I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think this through. Um, podcasts, but that's just sort of the beginning. Like, I think kind of, uh, uh, you know, miniseries, television miniseries would be, would be a good place for this to come up. Um, uh, maybe like uh, those the uh, planes that have trail those big long, uh, you know, uh, ads in the back. The, the batteries but, or something. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, no, it. it, it I guess if you, it, if 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 the. If the question was like, if in the article I said it should be discussed in case books, treatises, law school courses, briefs, cases, and other sources of legal information, 
mm-hmm. right? That <laughs> um, then we're not sure if we're covered here. <laughs> well, that and that would be a, a regular Houston generous uh, mm-hmm. uh, argument, right? Whereas if somebody were to say, um, "Hey, that particular there's a particular casebook which is not a really good source of legal information, uh, and therefore that should be excluded from," <laughs> that would be a reverse Houston generous <laughs> if I under, if I if I remember my own points correctly. Uh, but absolutely, this I'm glad that I was able I've been able to talk about this on a podcast and. Uh, Uh, when it goes viral, I think we're both going to be pretty excited. (laughs) I can't wait. Professor Wexler, thank you very much for your time and for speaking with me today. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for, thank you for publishing the piece and thanks for having me on the podcast to talk about it. Um, uh, I hope we together bring, uh, attention to this very important and and previously unrecognized, uh, issue. The Experto Crede podcast is the official podcast of the Minnesota Law Review, a student-run law review published by students at the University of Minnesota Law School. For current and past issues, and for more information, visit minnesotalawreview.org. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or the Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.